0: Originally, I was going to start with a short apologetic speech for those of you who come exclusively for my artwork. Um, I, I, I didn't think I would be drawing anything today, but then it hit me—I could draw my iceberg. So, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, yeah. Just recap that word. that you
1: were... Recap. Just
0: the, the prop. My prophetic word was more of a, a description at first. I saw the Lord in my mind's eye, just so you know. <laughs> I didn't have an open-eyed vision here, but I knew it was from the Lord. It was that Isaiah picture. I saw the Lord both exalted and present among His temple simultaneously, and He was causing a stir. He was, He was causing waves. He was making waves, like He was making trouble. Uh, but it was trouble for the enemy. I didn't say that, but that was the idea. It was making waves in a positive way for us, and that there was change afoot. Change. Change. It doesn't mean he's moving people out and whatever. Um, nothing like that that I'm aware of. It could include that, but I mostly felt things are just going to change. And then I prayed for grace to, like, like, I just stated now, let's be sensitive to these stirrings. I prayed for grace for that. Let's judge that too. Um, Maybe we, you know, if you feel to do that, we have time afterward, we could talk about it. That's a way of judging it, is processing it. If we feel it's from the Lord, we still have to apply it. If we don't feel it's from the Lord, then we just trash it. It's exactly what Paul says to do cling to what's good. Throw away everything evil as we test prophetic words. Hopefully, that was not an evil word or a bad one. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, I had a friend text me yesterday and they wound up calling me who had a dream uh, about me and a couple of others that there was change afoot. He had the dream th- uh, three times in one night, exact same dream, one after the other, after he'd have to get up, a few times in the night (laughs) but when he'd go back to sleep he had the same dream and so in my consciousness I wasn't referring to that I felt like I was getting something from the Lord but then I remembered he also had a word about change that everything would change at least that's what I said in the dream we're talking about the second and third traditions and my green marker isn't coming out as strongly here um Anyway, here you have the iceberg and the tip of the iceberg, the way I'll put it today. It represents our specific gatherings. The way we meet when we gather and what we do when we gather is the tip of the iceberg. That's what I want to illustrate with this. Okay, meeting as spiritual family units is not a method, nor is it merely a, what's the word I'm looking for? The model we use. We choose the house church model over other models. Now, other people may see it that way, and that's fine. I don't see it that way. I see meeting as family units as the biblical vision. I see it um, for, for a couple of reasons that way. Uh, number one, maybe more than a couple, but first of all, you know, what we see reflected in some of the texts we're going to look at today, for instance, in the sharing of the gifts and everybody sharing. You can't all do that when the whole a, a giant assembly meets. It just can't happen. So somewhere, sometime there has to be that sharing of gifts. It, it depends. That totally depends on the size of the groups that meet. Second of all, the texts clearly teach For us to love one another in the spirit of Scripture, in the clear light of Scripture, that means intentionally developing family, which we can't do in massive assemblies. When Jesus said love one another, that's what he meant. When he prayed that we would love one another the way that he and the Father are one, that we would be one the way they're one, (laughs) that's got to be family. I mean, it's, it's the explicit teaching of Scripture and it's the implication of everything else that taught, it's assuming that there's tight connections or else. I mean, for instance, the 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 issues of discipline that Jesus taught, they don't even matter if if there's not a distinct family unit that someone could be in or out of. Um, So these are the reasons why uh, I believe these family gatherings are meant to be family units. Right. It's not just a method. It rather grows out of a larger Value system. That's my point. By the way, also 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is God's household. Or the use of the body metaphor. To me, between John 17, John 13, and the body metaphor, it's inescapable that church is family, period. And everything else we do in a larger assembly like this is icing on the cake. But it's not the cake. Alright? So, the, way we meet, the reason why we meet the way we do is is because a larger value system is breaching the surface, the surface, right? So if people try to gather as a family that shares the spirit, merely as a method, one of two things will happen. Number one, they'll try to do it hard in the flesh, and it will become cultic and weird. We don't want that. How many people know we don't want to be a cult? Amen. Okay. Or it will default in something convenient for everyone where there's no sacrifice. It's provided by the leaders and then it becomes a product to be consumed and a conference to attend rather than the church that embodies Jesus. Those are the two extremes in the flesh. You can't do what we're doing without the spirit. So it's one of the reasons why I believe we're progressing. I would call it rather gradually rather than going too fast at once. The Lord is giving us land part by part. Exodus 23 or the beasts of the field would take us over if we tried to go too far at once. In any case, the reason we do what we do is because we see this is the the Jesus way. He's the mass underneath the surface that gives us this, this gathering here or these gatherings. All right. This is why it's because of the way we see Jesus that he has to have a, a body that has members that relate to one another and therefore embody him that there is no other way to embody him here we have jesus explained to us proclaimed to us in the gospel so the gospel as a as a full kingdom message leads to what i would call the family unit way of operating which is the only way of operating just like with humans in the natural it's families and everything else should be built on that, even in the normal, the, 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 the generic politic of life. The way humans organize themselves is in clumps called families. Whether they're the natural family or if the natural family gets broken, you'll find that th- there's still the tendency toward families among friends. And that'll even be exploited in entertainment and popular shows will just be about friends that become families. Because it's a thing, it's natural in the church. It's like, oh, I don't have to do that. It's like, what? That's the place it should be happening the most, not maybe an addendum to the other things. This is just pure logic, scripturally. It's it shouldn't be revolutionary, but I found personally it is. And also here we have all in one clump. It's all related together. God's eternal purpose. This is the mass below the surface. We see God's eternal vision, the mystery, not with not with complete divine clarity, but in terms of what we're supposed to know. God's vision is for a fully restored universe. On this side of Jesus, it looks like a fully restored church as a body. That's Ephesians 4. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1 through 6. Let's just do it Anyway, so these things, when they breach the surface, we, we, the practical thing we do is we have to meet as families in order to fulfill what God has done for us. Organizationally, for instance, in terms of analogy, we'll refer in passing to the Passover. <laughs> uh, no pun intended. But the way they did the Passover at the very first in ancient Israel, you know, every family unit celebrated the Passover. Every family in its home would have a sacrificial lamb. If one household was too small, they would join with another household to sacrifice a lamb. So it was one covenant meal throughout the entirety of whatever this million plus people, whatever it was. But they couldn't all meet in one Passover meal. So they all met in their homes. So they were, they all, in order to do it in close knit, they had to meet in homes, but because they were all doing it in the same spirit of covenant, they were all enjoying the Passover meal together. So the way that they connected with the whole was by doing it in a smaller group. It wasn't clicked off, it was in solidarity with the whole. We could do it as clicks, or we could choose not to. Because if there's real love in the family units, there'll be love among the family units. There'll be solidarity rather than exclusive click action. So that's the way that they were organized and connected. It was one Passover meal. But there had to be all these different lambs, all these different households with their lambs and with their feasts. Uh, similarly, when Jesus was echoing the Passover, not even in the Lord's Supper, but when He, when he fed the 5,000, Uh, The the Gospels, I think they all report this. Mark's version, you know, Matthew tells us they were in groups of 50 and 100. They had to break down the crowd into smaller groups. Mark's version, I think I remember this right. Mark's version doesn't give us the number. It just says he he put them into groups. And it's an interesting little phrase in Greek. We get our word symposium from this word. It, It is the Greek word symposium. Or symposium, I don't know if it ends with an S, uh, an N, it might, but it's in the plural. And and the phrase was just symposia, symposia. Meaning, and the word symposium in in, in that Greek context means a banquet shared by intimate friends. In fact, often in unbiblical contexts, it meant uh, a, a, a drinking party where worse things would happen. Obviously, that's not the way. Jesus and Mark was using the word, but it was, it was a little banquet so that the crowd could be broken up and be unified in its larger size by virtue of these smaller groups in intimacy with one another. It both reflected and added to the unity of the whole. Right? So by analogy, that's another reason why. It's these organizational moments of large crowds into smaller groups that shared intimate friendship or solidarity in the Spirit. That's another reason implicitly by analogy why we do what we do. It's, it's just biblical thinking in, in, in my mind. Uh, but here's my, my artwork for you to show you that the gatherings, it's important the way we meet and what we do. But it's not foundational. This is foundational. The first tradition. That's why Paul said, As of first importance, I give you this tradition, which is the gospel. So I'm using the word tradition in the positive sense. It was the protocol of the apostles. Here's what they did. And the first issue was the full gospel so that this had meaning. Then the the second issue, the second two traditions were the Lord's Supper and meeting in the Holy Spirit. I'm dealing with them both together today. And I'll be in your notes in a moment if you want to write it in there in the right order. So I'm, I'm doing both second and third traditions today because they overlap with each other. But the first tradition is foundational. If we go right to the way we meet, then we're going to miss something. You know, best case scenario, we'll, we won't have the energy to keep this up because this is too challenging without the larger vision. The way we gather is too challenging without the larger vision. And other things I'll talk about in a moment. And at the same time, if we understand God's full purpose but don't meet His family units, then it doesn't go anywhere. So when we do understand the full gospel, the way Jesus looks, embodied by His people, then we must breach the surface in these small, loving family units. Which is what the world, and especially at the end of the age... Israel will see and become jealous. When I think of these things, and I don't talk about Israel much, I I probably will start a little bit more. In these settings, I don't. I'm almost always thinking of this issue, the eternal purpose, and having something in the Gentile world that touches Israel at the end. Somewhere, something apostolic has to be restored in order to provoke them to jealousy, or it will never happen. It symbolized when Peter and John prayed and and commanded the lame man in the temple to be healed. It was a moment of restoration. And then he went walking and leaping and praising God in the temple. Okay, it was a literal event, but it was also symbolic of the restoration of Israel because Peter went on to preach the gospel and, and tell the Jews, if you repent... You will experience seasons of refreshing and then God will send the Messiah back. He tells them that. It's like y'all's repentance in Mass is the key to history. It'll get Jesus back. It's exactly what Jesus said. Peter reflected it. And then he says, and then we'll have the restoration of all things. (laughs) So moving backwards, restoration of all things, repentance of Israel. Moving backwards from that... Apostolic preaching and restoration. It was an apostle that was there in the temple that brought about this little restoration. And there was a little revival. It wasn't a national revival. That's still to come, we found out. But Peter still left us that deposit, that sermon. When you guys welcome him back fully, when you turn to him, he'll crack the sky. Well, so if we trace our way back somewhere, the Gentile world has got to be restored, which is part of what I see as the fullness of the Gentiles. Just Paul said that has to happen first. The fullness of the Gentiles, then all Israel will be saved. So we're contributing to the whole when we do this, which is another reason why I believe we meet this way. When you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're saying this is what he did. He created this people that can only be bound together supernaturally. Not just because we choose to do house groups, There has to be that supernatural, decisive element in this for it to be powerful and make Israel jealous. So, in light of the bigger picture, you you see the way I think and the the way I'm approaching this? It's important we get this practical issue together uh, and and that we talk about this practical issue of meaning together. But this is why. And for me, the why obliterates any other consideration. We've got to do this. And if I can't do it, then somebody's got to... I, 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 I mean this in a qualified sense. If I can't pull this off, fine, but somebody do it. That's why when we, when we launched this, I said, look, I don't know if I could really do this. I, I know the call of God is there, but, but I also have a natural mind and set of emotions. I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull this off. I don't know if I'm man enough to do this. But Lord, I'm, I'm going to try. <laughs> Woo! What confidence. But that was my attitude. I said, I'm, I'm going to try. Because I knew what was at stake. And I still pray the Lord put more of the weight of this under the surface part of the iceberg on my heart to create even more urgency than I have. Therefore, today's teaching is about... The second and third traditions, which are the Lord's Supper, number two, and number three, gathering together in the Spirit, which vertically means prayer and horizontally means prophecy. It's got to be in the Spirit. But of course, in First Corinthians eleven through fourteen, they overlap, because the Lord's Supper and then sharing the Holy Spirit as body members was all one meeting banquet and then meeting in the Spirit. Other times it was just gathering in the spirit. We'll get to that. So to recap a bit, our work consists of the vision, which is simple. It's family on mission. Our mission is to make disciples because that's what Jesus told us to do. Disciple making is the fruit of covenant family. And it's also uh, disciple making is the fruit of covenant family, but also covenant family is the goal of true discipleship. The Disciples are best made in family units, and they also create new family units. So the church planting is an integral part of discipleship. Discipleship is not going to school, and it's not even just being apprenticed. It's forming new communities. Okay, And our motto is discovering the way of powerful living in Jesus Christ, because when we're immersed in community, which is because we're following the Jesus way, we become like Jesus and therefore powerful people. The three, letter B, are you with me in your notes now? Letter B, sorry about that. I didn't mention it yet. Here we are, letter B. The three apostolic traditions. Number one, as we said, is the full gospel, which also announces the creation of a new community as testimony to God's kingdom. So it's redemption by the blood of Jesus. It's the renewal of each individual person as a new creation. And then it's the creation of family that must be lived out if we have the full gospel. The second tradition, according to Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 and following, is the Lord's Supper. And we're talking about that today. The Lord's Supper, which has been mishandled throughout history in, in two great carnal extremes. We'll get to that in a moment. The, it, uh, for Paul, it was an apostolic tradition. It was a practice that was rooted in great meaning. And when it's an expression of love, it also creates more love when it's done in the right spirit. And then the third tradition, according to 1 uh, uh, Corinthians 11, earlier in the chapter, verse 2, I believe it is, it's just gathering for prayer and prophecy. So that's where Paul was a revolutionary, where, where women in his culture, they couldn't do everything men could do. And they couldn't speak up in these different clubs and meetings if they were even allowed in them. Uh, so in Paul, for, for Paul's community of faith, not only were they allowed, but they should pray and prophesy just like anybody else. There was no regard for gender in the Holy Spirit. And so when he was teaching about the women maintaining their feminine distinctions and their roles in family, because that was being blended like it is in our day, There was a more fluid gender movement afoot in Corinth. Paul's like, no, 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 women should be women and men should be men. But you're all free in the spirit to express the spirit all the same. There's no difference there. But you should still women should look and act like women and men should look and act like men. In any case, that occasioned him to speak of this third tradition, which is the gathering in the spirit, prayer and prophecy should be in the spirit. By the way, he mentions another tradition in Second Thessalonians, which was uh, work hard. Uh, that's not as pertinent to our purposes in this series of meetings. But he talks, he, he again celebrates the Thessalonians. You carry on our traditions. And then he makes it specific that, um, you know, as w- when his apostolic team was there, he said, look, we work with our own hands and we were an example to you. You guys shouldn't just be busybodies. You should have jobs. You should be industrious. You should have something to give others. All of this was another tradition. Anyway, there's other things he insinuated too about Jews remaining Jews, Gentiles remaining Gentiles. He doesn't use tradition language, but something like it in First Corinthians 7.17. Anyway, the main traditions are there under letter B. So Roman numeral 2, today's topic, which we've already broached, the messiah's body and the lord's supper. And I gave you a list of key passages there that uh, uh teach this or mention it. And there's another verse that you can add that I have later but I didn't put it in this list. Uh ahead of 1 Corinthians 11:2, you can add 1 Corinthians 10:17, which we will look at today. So I'm going to read from Luke 22. I'm going to read Luke's version of the Lord's Supper instituted by Jesus for a couple of reasons. The reason why I choose Luke, a few reasons. One, he mentions the memorial that this is done in memory. Paul also mentions that. So I'm quoting Luke for that purpose. Number two, because eating food together is important to Luke. Come on. Luke uses the banquet as a symbol of the kingdom consistently throughout his gospel and Acts. It's a, it's a secondary emphasis for him. So I like that. Uh, and third reason is because... What was that third reason? Um, because there's, there's more than one cup mentioned in Luke. Luke. And so it shows you more apparently. This is not; uh, it doesn't have to be practiced. It's not definitive, but it seems as though there was an ancient seder being followed in Jesus' day for the Passover meal, and Jesus seemed to have been following it to some degree. And Luke reflects that it's 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 a little more than incidental. It's not meant to be authoritative or what do you call normative, but the fact that it's there is interesting because it roots the meal in its Jewish background rather than its Roman background, which really sets it off course into what I would call, and I need to be politically correct here, but weirdness, superstition, with a little paganism mixed in, where we're literally eating Jesus' flesh and drinking His blood. No. No, talk about getting us off course from the real purpose which is, to me, the spirit behind that is the enemy to what is truly kingdom and apostolic. Anyway, here we go. Luke 22, beginning in verse 14, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles were with him. And he said to them, I earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And already there, the language is just so powerful, dripping with that anointing of significance. Uh, earnestly desiring, eating a meal. It's called the Passover, with you before I suffer. It's like every word is, is just dripping with meaning with, uh, for us there. For I say to you, I'll never eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So this is the last time he'll do this. We're supposed to continue it. He's going to fast the Lord's Supper until we're all together again. So there shows you the, the importance of physical proximity around the table. Anyway. And when he had taken a cup and had given thanks, forgive me, but this is apparently one of the first cups in a Seder, probably similar to one we've inherited in our day. Probably one of the first ones, if not the first one. I mean, scholars debate, but whatever. It's an earlier cup. What, the cup of blessing to begin? No, that's later. Do you remember? Now I can't even remember. But the opening prayer is around a cup, and this could be that cup. He says, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I won't drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Then, when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, "This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me." And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten. So this apparently is the third cup, the cup of salvation or redemption. So he's taking that cup. So because it's after the meal, it's after they had eaten. So this is at a banquet. And he says, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. There's a little hint sometimes of the mixture we're going to have to deal with in this age, even at the banquet table of the Lord's covenant. Uh, And... Jude in the verse on Jude 12 I gave you in your notes, Jude mentions the agape feast, which apparently is another word for this. He talks about how the false teachers infiltrate your agape feasts. They find a way in. preying on the intimacy and the, the, the presence of power at these meetings anyway. So that's just part of the, the thorns that are sometimes involved in love when we express love the Lord's way. So, just to keep the pause going, when we do this the right way, the Jesus way, because of this, we are not avoiding all risks. And it's not just what we're reading about now, it's other things too. This is more risky than other ways of doing things. That's just life. Sometimes people ask me when they ask me what we do and why we do it then we get into a discussion and it almost inevitably leads down why do we have to do that (laughs) but um, then they'll say well then how do you make sure everybody is on the same page with doctrine and all this I'm like well what about this problem and that problem I'm like yeah you can't avoid those problems this is not as easy this is riskier but that's the risk of love Right, an old Michael Card song asks the question, Why? Why did, it ha- why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? And why did he use a kiss to show them? Because that's not what a kiss is for. And then the answer is only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. And only a friend comes close enough ever to cause that kind of pain. That's the risk of true love, is betrayal or pain in other ways. So this doesn't come without risk. It comes with risk. Now, it avoids other problems of you know, levels of demonic infiltration where they can live among us and be comfortable. We win in spiritual warfare. But the other side of it is certain forms of persecution and betrayal. So that's just part of the reality, part of the sobriety that sometimes causes people to run. And I'm like, well, this is what we signed up for. This is a part of life which is probably one of the reasons why the Lord has us progressively conforming to His image in this way. Everybody with me? Yeah. Yeah. Of course, the Lord turns all the betrayal against the devil. Jesus is like, not in an enticing way. He legitimately called Judas friend, which is a whole lot of love. But still, it's like, I'm not afraid to have you at my table, and I'm not going to rebuke you prophetically for what I know you're up to. Um, at least not in the sense of getting rid of you before you betray me, because that ultimately is playing right into the divine providence and plan, where the betrayers can then potentially be forgiven if they repent because of the blood shed through their betrayal, or at least the denial of Peter. Judas' level of betrayal went all the way into into uh, his condemnation. But in the many ways we betray the Lord that we are we're the, we're the, then become the beneficiaries of the pain He was caused in it all. And so there is the redemptive power, even when this happens in our settings of family on mission, that ultimately God just uses it all. He's unstoppable. Because if we can be Jesus-like, like the passage I read today, Luke's version of the, of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, and turning the other cheek, and these extraordinary commands that are impossible to keep, it's like, give knowing that you're not going to get it back. Let them take advantage of you. It's like, good night, Lord. I mean, I, I don't live there, naturally. I don't. I, I, I should, and I, I do when I really have time to pray and think about it, and prepare myself. And in some ways spontaneously, but in other ways, it's like if I lose that, it's my whole livelihood. I mean, what I, I don't know, but I mean, not that we have to give everything away all the time. I'm not saying that, but I I can tell the natural inclination isn't there. And the Lord's like God uses all these losses for his redemptive purposes. In the end, he's irresistible. So as we follow the Jesus way, there'll be these pains and these wounds, but they heal into scars that become sources of the Lord's healing in other people's lives. It's it's uh it's like an unvicious circle. It's always flowing with grace. It's extraordinary. So you see again, I'm talking tonight technically or this morning, technically <laughs> technically about the way we gather, but it belongs to this larger picture of redemption and what the kingdom looks like in our hearts envisioned and lived out. So the the one who betrays me is at hand. Um uh, He's at the table at the end of verse 21. Verse 22. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. Which is an extraordinary allusion to Daniel 7. That king, this is the way he was supposed to gain his rule. By betrayal, by suffering. But woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. And they began to discuss uh, among themselves which one of them might be, uh, that it might be who was going to do this thing, because they didn't know. We all have questions about the potentialities of our hearts. And then there's the dispute about who's the greatest, which is an interesting second topic. (laughs) Who's going to betray him and who's the greatest? (laughs) It's like you're not seeing the irony in that. Um, And then there's a tremendous teaching on leadership, which all leaders should drink like the wine of the Lord The youngest is the leader, the servant is the greatest, but that's another topic. Letter B in your notes. The Lord's Supper. There have been historical layers added over time from this ancient passage that we just read. Okay, number one, there have been historical layers added over time to this, just like many other issues Many, many, many other issues in the kingdom and in the scriptures. One extreme uh, layer that's been added for the Lord's Supper is sacramentalism. Uh, In other words, that um, something occurs called transubstantiation, where the, the literal food and drink turn into the body and blood of the Lord. So when you eat that, you eat him. And of course, the Scripture is cited in John 6. Eat My flesh and drink My blood, you have eternal life. And my response to that is, that's a metaphor. That Jesus knew would be controversial, they took Him literally then. And a bunch left. And He explained the metaphor. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. If, if the, the bread were literally my body, you'd be putting bite marks on my arm in this original setting when he says, this is my body, it's got to be a symbol or would they, they would be seeking somehow to eat him. Or we take care of it by changing the bread into his body. That's not the case because John 6 is a metaphor. Just like being born again is a metaphor. That's a theme in John. He uses a lot of metaphors and then he has to explain them because if we catch the metaphor, it means we're spiritually astute. And if we miss it, we're dull. You must be born again. How can I crawl back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? No, you must be born from above by the Spirit. He explains it. You see? It's a metaphor. Or, Lazarus is asleep. Well, if he's asleep, we'll go wake him up. No, Lazarus is dead. It says, then he told them plainly. Lazarus is dead because he used the metaphor of sleep. He used the metaphor of his body being bread. Regarding intimacy, specifically, by the way, with his words. My words are spirit and life. Further down in that passage. Being born again is a spiritual transaction, not literally being naturally birthed again. And on and on it goes. Like, he's not literally a physical door. It's a metaphor, right? That's the way of John. Same thing here. We, we have to catch the metaphor that this is my body, my blood, and still capture the significance of the meal because in letter B, subpoint, the other extreme is just making the bread and the cup as mere symbols as part of a little addendum ceremony to a church service. The Lord's Supper was never meant to be that either in overreaction to the Roman view. Like you're eating Jesus. Like literally, they have to teach on what to do if you drop one of the wafers because it's a piece of Christ. You can't eat it but you can't just throw it away. It's a piece of Jesus. So there's this whole thing about folding it up and putting it and carrying it a special way. I mean, they take that for real. Then there's the other extreme where it's too lightweight. Yes, of course, we're not literally eating Jesus, but there's a meal with great significance that mere symbolism falls short of. Which brings us to number two. This is the history we recognize. Not the other layers of sacramentalism or Mere symbolism, which, by the way, when people merely do it as a symbol in a church service, in my mind, it's better than nothing. I'm not saying that's really bad or evil, but I am saying it misses the whole point. But what we do get out of it when we do that, thank God. For any good that happens therein, I'm not trying to knock all that, but I am trying to interpret the scriptures in their raw purity rather than have to accommodate everyone. You only live once. The history we do recognize, the Passover. More to say about that later. Okay, To me, this is very simple, but it's also biblical. Letter A under number 2, the Passover is the history behind the Lord's Supper. Okay, not Roman communion, or the Eucharist as it's so called. But rather the Jewish Passover. Another plug for the importance of Jewish roots. A Semitic, a more biblically Hebrew view of our backgrounds gives us a better understanding. Now that can be taken to carnal extremes, but it's still, when it's done right, it's the best background. Letter B, the history we recognize, is Jesus' version of the Passover where He fulfills the Passover and He renews it into the Lord's Supper. So Messianic Jews can let them overlap perfectly. They can do Passover and see it as the Lord's Supper, and that's great. But in Jesus' renewed fulfillment of that, He he brings it into something that we can practice more frequently rather than once a year. It's a part of the community's life. So He fulfills the Passover without replacing it. He fulfills it and renews it and simplifies it. And letter C, I look to the practice of the apostles and the early church in Acts. They broke bread together regularly. And of course, we have Paul's teachings in one of the passages we're looking at tonight, which is the key passage for us as it brings Jesus' teaching from this passage into the life of the church in the Gentile world. So the Jesus version of the Passover, the Last Supper, he brings it into the New Covenant community life. All right. How are we doing so far? Pretty good. I feel great. Okay, little. No, is it on the back? Little letter, letter C's on the back. That's okay. There's a couple of times I didn't give you sub points, so you can fill them in where I um, I didn't put them in your notes. So number three, now we're on the biblical definition and purpose of the Lord's Supper. Right. Letter A. It is a covenant meal. It's a covenant meal. It reflects our covenant with God. Just like Jesus said, this is the, the blood of the new covenant, or the new covenant in my blood. It's the Jeremiah 31 fulfilled. We have a new covenant. It's exactly w- what my prophetic prayer was about. And the, the, I wasn't even thinking of it at the time. It just struck me. Oh, this new covenant. And oh yeah, I'm talking about that today. Maybe subconsciously I I tied it together, but I felt the burden of the Lord best I can tell. So it's a covenant meal that celebrates our covenant with God and our covenant with one another. That's the point of the Lord's Supper. And it's a powerful interaction. Look, meals are powerful no matter what. Amen. I mean there's few things more intimate than eating. You're chomping up things that taste good and swallowing them into your body. <laughs> They're literally going inside of you. That's pretty intimate, which is why instinctively we usually want to do it, not always, but usually there's a tendency to do it with other people. Because psychologically we're like we it's a friendship forum. It's natural. And in many parts of the world today, really implicitly even in the West, definitely in the biblical world and more importantly in the Bible itself, uh, who you ate with was who you deeply associated with, which is why they made sure they didn't eat with everybody, which was the problem in Corinth. You have to wait for one another, Paul said. It was a huge deal because they, some were celebrating the Lord's Supper and leaving out brothers and sisters because, by the rules of their society, they shouldn't be eating with those people. And Paul's like, that's not going to work in the new covenant. That's how. I mean, think about it. You, your teacher eats with, with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, that's shocking. You're eating with them? I mean you're recognizing them and here's the key you're bringing them into fellowship with your heart and giving them public honor how dare you do that Jesus is like they need me so we share food I'm telling you that was revolutionary to the the world to the religious system of Jesus' day and to the social system not only among Jews but among the, the, the Roman Empire that was obscene that's the power of a meal to them. The, the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, and Joseph was, was neither fully Hebrew in, in, in terms... Well, of course, he was ethnically, but in terms of his status, he couldn't eat with his brothers, and he couldn't eat with the Egyptians because he wasn't an Egyptian. So when they all had food, the, what was it, ten brothers at that point? Eleven? Was it tw- eleven brothers? Ten? It must have been eleven, because he was the twelfth, because Benjamin... No, Benjamin was home. So it was ten brothers... In one room, Joseph in one room, and the Egyptians in another room. And and it's not like they didn't like each other. You just can't mix at the meal. Because you're different sorts of people. Everybody agreed with that and understood it. And Paul's like, this is a tradition. Y'all got to eat together. Paul's like, nah, I can't really do that. And Paul's like, well, you know, it's a covenant meal. So if you take covenant into your body, but are not exercising covenant socially, then... That's not going to mix. It's very powerful. My whole point is that this is a covenant meal. It both refl- covenant, by the way, organic covenant, another way of saying, family. This meal reflects family love that we have outside of the meal, And if it is reflecting family love from outside the meal, it's also helping generate more love. Because that's just what getting together around food does? I guess this message is not a call to a major fast. <laughs> Keep trying, Bob. Keep chugging right along on that one. A few subpoints underneath letter A there. I don't know if I have them enumerated, but I'll just give you one, two and three. Number one, this covenant meal is a literal meal. It's not a symbolic snack. Part of the point is that it would not be convenient. Now, that doesn't mean it has to rest on the shoulders always of the same, the, the mother-wife of the household. I, understand, I don't mean to be a burden to the people who tend to perhaps prepare meals in our families. Uh, nonetheless, the inconvenience of the meal is part of the point. It takes time and effort and money and mess to mix this together. That's a part of the point. Church is not meant to be a system that makes life convenient for people to come and get plugged in and leave at your convenience. And we're going to build the success of our ministries around that convenience. It's the opposite. It's family coming together to sacrifice for love, which is the whole point of these gatherings. And I haven't even gotten to that point in your notes yet. That's how important it is. This is all about love. And yes, I wrote it in read in honor of Valentine's Day okay so well it's a literal meal again because the Passover is the background they ate because of the word supper it's like is no one going to come out and say it It's, it's not communion it's the Lord's supper the word referred to the main meal of the day or to a banquet. This was also the practice of the early Christians. I then cite in my notes here a verse I already read in Luke 22:20. 20. In the same way after the cup he took the cup after they had eaten, and then 1 Corinthians 10:17 and I gave you that elsewhere. Where Paul says there's one bread therefore there's one body, etc., which we'll get to in a moment. Letter B, the purpose of the meal is a memorial. We remember Jesus, but it's a covenant meal as a memorial. Again, you're taking food and drink into your body. That's speaking of the new covenant that we have internalized Jesus by the spirit. That's how intimate this is. He actually lives inside of us and we live inside of him. So the meal causes us to remember that because it's covenant, so that's the depth of covenant, is internal uh, connection, and then we remember what He did to cut that covenant for us. It's a time to pause, which probably should be our routine throughout every day, but especially together to remember, oh, He did this for us. And just like the Passover meal, we remember, right? the the, the, The Jewish Passover community would do this once a year because they may not pass through the Red Sea but once in history but they continue the Passover every single year since then because they are always now a Passover people always so though they're not physically literally passing through the Red Sea they're always a Passover people millennia several millennia later still a Passover people they don't pass through the sea but they do the meal every year so are we always a saved people Don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There's a childlike, uh, uh, simple memory that we're saved by the blood of Jesus. We should never get past that. We should never, ever get over that. We may not have to be taught that again, but we should never get over it. Come on. And the Lord's Supper really helps us never get over the sacrifice of Jesus the Egyptian bondage, the tyranny, the ugliness that we, were, uh, that we were subjected to and guilty of, and the way the Lord graciously liberated us and drowned our enemies behind us and caused us with Miriam to sing songs of praise on the other side, just like after the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, they all sang a hymn. All right, so it's a memorial and it is the occasion, letter C, of fellowship for family. Yes, it is a fellowship. Why and how or why do I say, well, I don't even think I have this um, as a wire house. So sorry about that. I, I wrote it differently than what I saw at first. Okay. It's a body coming together. It is It is for fellowship. It doesn't mean like it's just like any other meal, but neither is it a ceremony. It is for fellowship. When When Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper or when, when Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 11 he quotes Jesus as saying this is my body then he switches the use of the word body from the bread as a symbol of the body he switches it and now calls us the body which means there's a connection between our body relationships and the bread we share which is one course of a full meal so that means it is an occasion for fellowship, for us to connect. Also, um, it's, it's a, a, an opportunity to connect for camaraderie in our common cause, for friendship. That's another way of saying the same thing. It's also an occasion to exercise the gifts of the Spirit out of love. And it is an opportunity for Holy conversation. Which means if you're doing both the third tradition of prayer and prophecy and the second tradition of the Lord's Supper, you're going to probably need a little extra time to do your whole deal. That's why it's like, how often should we do the Lord's Supper? Doesn't say. I believe the way Paul applied the renewed version, which is what we have to go by, is more than once a year. It should be part of the fabric of the community life. But how often we do it is not really told. It's something that it's like we should just be doing it. It should be a part. And when we don't do that, we still have the Holy Spirit for prayer and prophecy. So that should always be happening. So we shouldn't gather without the Holy Spirit. (laughs) That's Paul's point there. We should be praying in the Spirit, interceding, worshiping, and we should be prophesying to one another, not just chatting are giving our opinions. There might be time for conversations like that, but in the real meat of the time together, it's Holy Ghost. Right? Um, So, uh, but how often we do it, it should still be done. It should still be things we plan. It should be a meal that we plan and make the efforts to do. And and again, really the bottom line, and I'm not even there yet still, but really, this is the bottom line, because to gather this way is to love one another. This is the issue. This not how we do it. This is the biblical teaching on how to love one another. Church, is in the biblical vision, It's not the add-on we do once in a while at the end of the week or whatever. It is a way of life. And when we do get together, we we must love one another by showing one another the spirit in our lives. So that the other can be edified. Because I can't make it without your gift exercising when we're all together. And neither can you from her or, or he from she and all that. And getting together as the Lord's Supper is also a family meal. So you see, it all works together. According to Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, that is not an isolated passage. It is in context between 12 and 14. Really, 11 through 14. It's all one thing, the Lord's Supper and the meeting. He puts the love chapter there because this is the original context. This tip of the iceberg is the way of love. Scripture teaches us how to love one another. You're a family. Act like a family with a covenant meal and show one another the Spirit. And just like Jesus' disciples needed His presence and the Spirit in that Last Supper, so do we, every Lord's Supper. That's why this is blocked off teaching in many places in Scripture, or at least five, right? Four Gospels. In first Corinthians and implied in Acts, it's not even implied. So there you have it. Kind of six dot dot dot. All right. So what else we have here? Okay, number four in your notes. Number four. Are you with me? The meal is a central, literal symbol of God's kingdom. Okay, I use it contradictory on purpose. It's a literal symbol. So it it symbolizes Jesus' body and blood, but it's still a literal manifestation of God's kingdom. So when we symbolize Jesus with the body and blood, we're still manifesting God's reign truly. In the context of Luke, which is my first point, do you have letter A? Context of Luke. The banquet is a symbol of God's kingdom. That's why Jesus says, when you throw a banquet... Invite the lame and the outcast. Don't just do it for your friends. And he's teaching, especially the religious elite, you know, that you don't just do this for your friends. It's like my disciples. This is a way of communicating with the outcast because that's where the kingdom goes. But he puts it in the context of a meal. Right. And of course, then over in chapter 24, there's many examples in between. Of course, there's the meal with Mary and Martha and Martha's. You know, they invite Jesus over and Martha's busy with preparing the meal and Mary's at his feet, which is the real point. But again, it's a meal that's the setting. Then, of course, chapter 24, the the mysterious Jesus hidden from the eyes of... Of of the disciples. They didn't see Him alive from the dead, even though He was physically there. When was He revealed? In the breaking of the bread. At the meal. Because Luke is emphasizing this as a symbol of God's kingdom. It's a banquet where all are welcome and where His covenant people share life and love in the Spirit. Letter B under number 4. The meal is a powerful social occasion. As we already said, it was a matter of honor and shame in the ancient world. Remember, okay, remember, how did Paul come to know that Peter was sending a mixed message about the gospel? He said, We are not justified by works, we are justified by faith. And he rebuked Peter publicly for contradicting that, not because Peter was actually articulating. or putting on his website a different doctrine that we're justified by works, but rather because he would not eat with Gentiles. He was contradicting the gospel itself. Oh, you're sending a mixed message. You're saying we're justified by different things because if we're all justified by faith, we're all one family. So if you leave this family to go eat with just certain people, you're saying we're all living by different kingdom rules. And that ain't right. The creation of a new family is the crowning achievement of the Gospels. The Gospel. And the four Gospels. It's the crowning achievement. Right? How was Peter... It's ironic, isn't it, that Peter also in Acts 10, when he was instructed to go into the house of a Gentile, I mean, he learned this lesson at one point. How did God communicate you can go into the house of a Gentile, just for starters, and actually preach a Jewish messianic message to them? For kickers. How how did he communicate that he lowered a sheet sheet opened up all unclean foods, non kosher. And he says, get up, Peter, kill and eat, eat whatever you want. Oh, I would never put something unclean. I called it clean, which helps us understand why God had kosher diet to begin with. It was a social issue. It was a mark of the covenant who you eat with and who you don't eat with because social interaction at the meal is so powerful. So now he says, it's through food and through a meal that I'm communicating with you. It's through diet that I'm telling you who you can fellowship with and who you can't. And now it's for everybody. So it's very important. And the Corinthians, you know, like I've, I've taught before, we have some new people here. If I'm a day worker on a lower, on the social scale than you, a powerful, more wealthy person with greater social connections, if we eat at the same table, you've lowered yourself to my station. And it will change your station out there in the city. So the Corinthians, the wealthier ones, were leaving out the less wealthy ones. Because they can't share the same table. And Paul said that's why some of you have a a virus that won't be healed and others have already died. So this is not a small thing because you're taking in your body a covenant meal, but you're breaking covenant socially. And when you do that, you ingest the food in the spirit of covenant while breaking the spirit of covenant. Your immune system cannot sustain itself and you'll get sick and some have already perished. So the social the the social occasion of a meal is very powerful. Yeah. All right. So here we go. Number uh, letter C under that. The community then enjoys variations on the Lord's Supper. Number one, the literal Lord's Supper. We plan it and we do it where we include as many people in our unit as possible. Remember the organization. Sometimes we can't meet an entire church city in a house. But if we're doing in the spirit of unity in smaller groups with the unity of the whole city, we're not violating the Lord's Supper. We're keeping it. Right. But so, number one, we're intentionally doing the Lord's Supper. A a second tier is fellowship meals that may be unplanned or kind of planned where we're just breaking bread together. It's kind of in the middle, kind of a gray area. When it says in Acts, they broke bread together. Well, is that the Lord's Supper or not? Yes. Yes. It probably is at least mostly the Lord's Supper, but probably also refers to like when it says they just took their meals together. It's like a, a second tier variation. It's connected with the Lord's Supper, but it's just part of the spontaneous love of eating together at times. And thirdly, Paul recognizes there's times for just private meals. You can do that at home. You don't have to include everybody. There's just times for that. And then there's times where we're just eating together together breaking down normal walls of our rhythm of life. And then, of course, there's the Lord's Supper where we put all of our effort. Why? To honor the Lord and to be together in a special way. Let us see the Messiah's body actually meeting together. Paul uses the terminology of body. Number one, the purpose of our gathering when we gather for the Lord's Supper or otherwise is love. Excuse me. (laughs) Love is the purpose why we get together. It is love. It is not a method. It is the way we love one another. It's why we show up. Because our physical presence adds something, even if we don't say anything. This is why social media is robbing the church. And that's putting it mildly. I know some people are shut-ins, and I think there's ways to deal with that. But the point is, and, and I know if, if you can get online and watch a sermon. I do that. I love that. But, I mean, it's the physical. I mean, literally, even physiologically, if you don't have the spirit, the heart, the human heart, sends out magnetic energy more than the brain does. And when we're together, the heart sense one another. How much more in the spirit? Just... We are so valuable to one another. When we talk, there's a sharing, there's a substance that gets exchanged in a sense. Like even this, I mean, that's why you know with this whole the fear of the, the virus, you know, you people have to wear something on their mask. I, I traveled this past weekend, was, no, two weekends ago. And a bunch of people wearing masks, traveling on planes in and out, and all that. But because just getting close enough to people, I mean, it can maybe if you really think about it. Don't think about it too much, because it'd be kind of (laughs) gross. But I saw the light one day when I was going to the airport many years ago. You may have been with me, Brett. I don't remember if it was that trip many years ago. We were in a minivan and we're driving early in the morning to the airport. And another guest speaker was in the front seat speaking to us further back. So he's got his head turned back toward us. The sun is coming through. So the sun's behind him shining and he's just talking. And I thought, oh, my goodness. And it's not like what I just did. I had a specific kind of a disruption and things got in the way. And this was just normal talk. There wasn't extra there in the way. And it was like clouds. And I thought, oh my goodness, that... Wow. Okay, now that's the gross version. In the spirit, in the spirit, there is an exchange just being physically present, being together and talking to one another. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord heard and wrote a book of memorial, or a book of memorial was written before Him. So just our presence together in the Spirit adds something. Guys, we need one another. This isn't something we attend. Just showing up, we're serving other people. That's your value. And we haven't even started with the the, the, the key to this, which is sharing in the Spirit what we're getting. The Corinthians were sharing the Spirit To display how great they were. Which is why Paul puts chapter 13 where he does, that's not the reason, but don't stop being charismatic. Just shift it into the right reason. To love one another. If you love one another, you won't blurt out in tongues without an interpretation. You'll carefully find a way to edify. And everybody's activated. Not just because we all feel good about ourselves, but so we can help the other person. Because if that's real. This is powerful. I mean, when I'm, when I'm on my way or gearing myself or on my way to a meeting, that's what I'm thinking. I'm not thinking I gotta go or I'm not thinking. I mean, there may be moments where you, you physically feel that. That's all normal everyday life. But when I really am in the right way of thinking, I'm thinking, okay, I'm about to get attacked by love arrows from the spirit through other people. And I'm going to leave encouraged and edified. And it almost always happens, and sometimes to the extreme. And so, Lord, I also want to be able to share if you give me something to share, because I want to do the same thing. This is real. This is not just talk. Just getting together does something. Then sharing the Spirit does way more. The purpose of the gathering is love in the Spirit. The two are one. It's not just love and it's not just the Spirit where we're just using our gifts. It's the spiritual gifts being exercised through love and it's loving one another through the Holy Spirit. Through the gifts. Paul puts it all together. We're not supposed to divide it up. We're not supposed to be non-charismatic. You could read these texts because I won't have time to read them. But that's okay. We got you got time at home. Therefore, letter A under number one, the meals express love when we do have a meal together. Because they're family meals. Not every gathering has to be a meal, but that's part of it when we have it. It's a family meal. Come to the table. Listen, when these meals express the love we have for one another outside of the meals, then the meal also becomes a tool to create more love. So if my family, if we, got a, if we have a pretty good, healthy, loving family, the meal expresses that. And then when we do sit together as a meal, it also fosters more love. All the more in the Lord's Supper. Letter B, these gatherings are meant to be biblically charismatic because the gifts express love. If we don't meet in meetings where everyone is uh, uh, where everyone is activated to share his or her gift, then we're not meeting in love. Because that's what this is all about. So if we fail to find ways to gather where everyone is activated, we're failing to love one another, which is another reason why we do this and why we then have to put up oftentimes with people barely trained or not trained yet on how to manifest charismatic gifts and they don't know what they're doing. There's all kinds of potential for weirdness and we've got to sort all that out and teach and train so that people can love well. But if we don't meet this way, it's because somebody somewhere ain't loving the people. Because this is the way you maximize love in the Spirit. So again, this is why there's a certain method to my not-madness Because I see gathering otherwise as a massive passive convenience that's a lack of love. I can remember talking many years ago with Heidi Baker. I don't know her. We don't have a friendship. But we were at the same conference a long time ago. And she was talking with me about missions. And I was telling her about some of the missionaries that that fire sent out and um, I was just sharing with a, with with her about a, a, a couple of places where some missionaries were and some of them were in very difficult places and she looked at me and she said that's because they're in love <laughs> I, mean, I was just explaining to her answering a question about where some of them were and when I told them about some of them in a hard place laying down their lives she goes that's because they're in love they're in love that's why they go and do what they do For the Lord, because they love Him. She's all about love. And I thought to myself, I want to be more like that right there. I want that. And that's why we should come together and share the Spirit. Inconveniently sometimes. Because of love. Not because, well, they do church in a way that's the easiest for me. So I'll choose their church above the others. That's not love. That's the opposite of love. Sorry, what is that? Selfishness. How many people know it's probably not going to be a healthy church if you predicate the whole thing on serving selfish needs? Isn't that kind of, sort of the opposite of what church is? Love lays down its life for the others. Not just the paid staff, everybody comes together in love. Right? That's the reason. Why do we come together to give one another spiritual gifts as we're able and other forms of love? Because we love one another. It's because of love. That's why. That's why we follow the biblical instructions. Guys, please go before the Lord. Let us all believe how valuable each one of us is so that we're willing to make the sacrifice to give portions of that value to others when we show up and then... Share the spirit with one another. And if you start feeling from the enemy that you're not valuable and that you don't have something to offer, then rebuke that lie. Don't go by your your current mood. (laughs) Go by what the gospel says and realize how valuable you are. And we need you. This isn't meant to give anybody a guilt trip. If you can't physically come for some reason, that's a totally separate issue because love then would serve you. I understand that. But when you know what I'm saying? Our motivation and purpose is love, so whenever it's possible, this should be the driving force of getting together as frequently as God leads us, enjoying the meal or whatever, and sharing the spirit. Okay, I'm really I'm about to close here because we're we're out of time. I um, oh, and so finally, let C. see the gatherings occasion, the honor of one another to embody the Messiah because Paul speaks of love and honor in our key passage for us to read at home, 1 Corinthians 11:17, all the way through the end of chapter 14, where he's teaching again the second and third traditions on how they should gather and what they do, when they do, because of love. So when we read in 1 Corinthians 12 about the gifts of the Spirit, You will notice a couple of things for when you do your homework and read those passages. Number one, the gift list comes after talk about the Lord's Supper. Number two, the gift list comes before talk about the body. Wasn't that stunning? That was not a dramatic pause. That was try to think of what you're going to say next. No, no. I'm trying to decide what to say next. Jesus spoke about the body up in chapter 11. And then he speaks again about the body further down in chapter 12. And what's in the middle? The gifts. Because it's all part of the same situation. And it all relates together. There's nine gifts he lists. But he always says, nine different gifts, one spirit. Nine different gifts, one spirit. Then he gets to the rest of chapter 12. Many members, one body. Many members, one body. It's the same thing. They're parallel. You have one spirit with many gifts. You have one body with many members. And so when you gather together, you should look like that. Everybody's got something different. But the ones who might more naturally be on the lower social end... I don't know what, they're, they're weaker, they don't have much to say, they're not as cared about, I don't know. The, the, the diff, there are all kinds of reasons why people receive less honor in Corinth or any other city. Paul says they're the ones you lift up the most, not the least. You don't even make them even, you lift them up. They go higher because that's the way of the body. right? You take care of the members that are more vulnerable. Right? You know, my liver is a very, very important part of my body but I can't afford it to be out here because it needs to be protected by other members. It's so vital. So as vulnerable as it would be if it weren't covered, it's the most vital, one of the most vital organs in my body. I can't live without it. Right? So we honor one another by protecting one another in different ways, and one way is to give the most honor. Right? So many things to say about this in the body. But we remember that um, we come together as a variety because there's a variety of gifts. But those are the things that make us one. They don't just express our unity. They help us foster more unity. This is why when we're discipling people, we have to teach them how to do this. This is what activates Christians. Just being a responsible member, a loving member of a body. That by itself can make people... uh, solid Christians without a discipleship program. Add some good systematic instruction and, yeah, you got it going on there. So there's a variety of gifts. There's a variety of members. We're called to love and honor one another, and we are called to prophesy. Your assignments, our assignments, are to memorize all the passages that I listed. Not really, but memorize some of them. And then, of course... We, we gather in love and honor. These are things we do, but now let's do it all the more. Practice the spiritual gifts, and this will also be a good, uh, segue into our last turning point meeting, which is about mission. Because the Spirit's gonna help us determine aspects of our mission when we gather. Because we, we, the, we get the mind of the Spirit when we're all contributing.